Book Two, Chapter Thirty Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton. Book Two, Chapter Thirty Four. Newland Archer sat at the writing-table in his library in East 39th Street. He had just got back from a big official reception for the inauguration of the new galleries at the Metropolitan Museum, and the spectacle of those great spaces, crowded with the spoils of the ages, where the throng of fashion circulated through a series of scientifically catalogued treasures, had suddenly pressed on a rested spring of memory. Why, this used to be one of the old Crestola rooms, he heard someone say, and instantly everything about him vanished, and he was sitting alone on a hard leather divan against a radiator, while a slight figure in a long sealskin cloak moved away down the meagerly fitted vista of the old museum. The vision had roused a host of other associations and he sat looking with new eyes at the library which, for over thirty years, had been the scene of his solitary musings and of all the family confabulations. It was the room in which most of the real things of his life had happened. There his wife, nearly twenty-six years ago, had broken to him with a blushing circumlocution that would have caused the young women of the new generation to smile the news that she was to have a child, that their eldest boy, Dallas, too delicate to be taken to church in midwinter, had been christened by their old friend, the Bishop of New York, the ample, magnificent, irreplaceable bishop, so long the pride and ornament of his diocese. There Dallas had first staggered across the floor, shouting, Dad! while May and the nurse laughed behind the door. There their second child, Mary, who was so like her mother, had announced her engagement to the dullest and most reliable of Reggie Chivers's many sons, and there Archer had kissed her through her wedding veil before they went down to the motor which was to carry them to Grace Church, for in a world where all else had reeled on its foundations, the Grace Church wedding remained an unchanged institution. It was in the library that he and May had always discussed the future of their children, the studies of Dallas and his younger brother Bill, Mary's incurable indifference to accomplishments and passion for sports and philanthropy, and the vague leanings toward art which had finally landed the restless and curious Dallas in the office of a rising New York architect. The young men nowadays were emancipating themselves from the law and business and taking up all sorts of new things. If they were not absorbed in state politics or municipal reform, the chances were that they were going in for Central American archaeology, for architecture or landscape engineering, taking a keen and learned interest in the pre-revolutionary buildings of their own country, studying and adapting Georgian types, and protesting at the meaningless use of the word colonial. Nobody nowadays had colonial houses except the millionaire grocers of the suburbs. But above all, sometimes Archer put it above all, it was in that library that the governor of New York, coming down from Albany one evening to dine and spend the night, had turned to his host and said, banging his clenched fist on the table 
and gnashing his eyeglasses. Hang the professional politician. You're the kind of man the country wants, Archer. If the stable's ever going to be cleaned out, men like you have got to lend a hand in the cleaning. Men like you. How Archer had glowed at that phrase. How eagerly he had risen up at the call. It was an echo of Ned Winsett's old appeal to roll up his sleeves and get down into the muck, but spoken by a man who set the example of the gesture, and whose summons to follow was irresistible. Archer, as he looked back, was not sure that men like himself were what his country needed, at least in the active service in which Theodore Roosevelt had pointed. In fact, there was reason to think it did not. For after a year in the State Assembly, he had not been re-elected, and had dropped back thankfully into obscure, if useful, municipal work, and from that again to the writing of occasional articles in one of the reforming weeklies that were trying to shake the country out of its apathy. It was little enough to look back on, but when he remembered to what the young men of his generation and his set had looked forward, the narrow groove of money-making, sport and society to which their vision had been limited, even his small contribution to this new state of things seemed to count. As each brick counted in a well-built wall, he had done but little in public life. He would always be, by nature, a contemplative and a dilettante. But he had had high things to contemplate, great things to delight in, and one great man's friendship to be his strength and pride. He had been, in short, what people were beginning to call a good citizen. In New York, for many years past, every new movement, philanthropic, municipal, or artistic, had taken account of his opinion and wanted his name. People said, ask Archer, when there was a question of starting a new school for crippled children, reorganizing the Museum of Art, founding the Groiler Club, inaugurating the new library, or getting up a new society of chamber music. His days were full, and he was filled decently. He supposed it was all a man ought to ask. Something he knew he had missed, the flower of life. But he thought of it now as a thing so unattainable and impossible that to have repined would have been like despairing because one had not drawn the first prize in a lottery. There were a hundred million tickets in his lottery, and there was only one prize. The chances had been too decidedly against him. When he thought of Ellen Olenska, it was abstractedly serenely, as one might think of some imaginary beloved in a book or a picture. She had become the composite vision of all that he had missed. The vision, faint and tenuous as it was, had kept him from thinking of other women. He had been what was called a faithful husband, and when May had suddenly died, carried off by infectious pneumonia, through which she had nursed their youngest child, he had honestly mourned her. Their long years together had shown him that it did not so much matter if marriage was a dull duty, as long as it kept the dignity of a duty. Lapsing from that, it became a mere battle of ugly appetites. Looking about him, he honored his own past, and mourned for it. After all, there was good in the old ways. 
his eyes making the round of the room, done over by Dallas with English mezzotints, Chippendale cabinets, bits of chosen blue and white, and pleasantly shaded electric lamps, came back to the old East Lake writing desk that he had never been willing to banish, and to his first photograph of May, which still kept its place beside the inkstand. There she was, tall, round-bosomed and willowy, in her starched muslin and flapping leghorn, as he had seen her under the orange trees in the mission garden, and as he had seen her that day, so she had remained, never quite the same height, yet never far below it, generous, faithful, unwearied, but so lacking in imagination, so incapable of growth, that the world of her youth had fallen into pieces and rebuilt itself without her ever being conscious of the change. This hard, bright blindness had kept her immediate horizon apparently unaltered. Her incapacity to recognize change made her children conceal their views from her as Archer concealed his. There had been from the first a joint pretense of sameness, a kind of innocent family hypocrisy, in which father and children had unconsciously collaborated, and she had died thinking the world a good place, full of loving and harmonious households like her own, and resigned to leave it because she was convinced that, whatever happened, Newland would continue to inculcate in Dallas the same principles and prejudices that had shaped his parents' lives, and that Dallas, in turn, whenever Newland followed her, would transmit the sacred trust to little Bill. And of Mary, she was sure as of her own self. So, having snatched little Bill from the grave, and given her life in the effort, she went contentedly to her place in the Archer vault, in St. Mark's, where Mrs. Archer already lay safe from the terrifying trend which her daughter-in-law had never even become aware of. Opposite May's portrait stood one of her daughter. Mary Chivers was as tall and fair as her mother, but large-waisted, flat-chested, and slightly slouching, as the altered fashion required. Mary Chivers's mighty feats of athleticism could not have been performed by the twenty-inch waist that May Archer's azure sash so easily spanned, and the difference seemed symbolic. The mother's life had been so closely girt as her figure. Mary, who was no less conventional and no less intelligent, yet led a larger life and held more tolerant views. There was good in the new order, too. The telephone clicked, and Archer, turning from the photographs, unhooked the transmitter at his elbow. How far they were from the days when the legs of a brass-buttoned messenger boy had been New York's only means of quick communication. Chicago wants you. Ah, it must be a long distance from Dallas, who had been sent to Chicago by his firm to talk over the plans of a lakeside palace they were to build for a young millionaire with ideas. The firm always sent Dallas on such errands. Hello, Dad. Yes, Dallas. I say, how do you feel about sailing on Wednesday? Mauritania. Yes, next Wednesday, as ever is. Our client wants me to look at some Italian gardens before we settle anything, and has asked me to nip over on the next boat. <laughs> I've got to be back on the 1st of June. The voice broke into a young, conscious laugh. Uh, so we look alive. 
I say, Dad, I want your help. Do come. Dallas seemed to be speaking into the room. The voice was as nearby and natural as if he had been lounging in his favorite armchair by the fire. The fact would not ordinarily have surprised Archer, for long-distance telephoning had become as much a matter of course as electric lighting and five-day Atlantic voyages. But the laugh did startle him. It seemed wonderful that across all those miles and miles of country—forest, river, mountain, prairie, roaring cities, and busy indifferent millions—Dallas's laugh should still be able to say, "'Of course, whatever happens, I must get back on the first, because Fanny Buford and I are to be married on the fifth. The voice began again. "'Think it over. No, sir, not a minute. You've got to say yes now. Why not? I'd like to know. If you can allege a single reason. No, I knew it. Then it's a go, eh? Because I can count on you to ring up the Canard office first thing tomorrow, and you'd better book a return on a boat from Marseille. I say, Dad, it'll be our last time together in this kind of way. Oh, good. I knew you would. Chicago rang off, and Archer rose and began to pace up and down the room. It would be their last time together in this kind of way. The boy was right. They would have lots of other times after Dallas's marriage, his father was sure, for the two were born comrades, and Fanny Beaufort, whatever one might think of her, did not seem likely to interfere with their intimacy. On the contrary, from what he had seen of her, he thought she would be naturally included in it. Still, change was change, and differences were differences, and much as he felt himself drawn toward his future daughter-in-law, it was tempting to seize the last chance of being alone with his boy. There was no reason why he should not seize it, except the profound one that he had lost the habit of travel. May had disliked to move except for valid reasons, such as taking the children to the sea or in the mountains. She could imagine no other motive for leaving the house in Thirty-Ninth Street or their comfortable quarters at the Wellands in Newport. After Dallas had taken his degree, she had thought it her duty to travel for six months, and the whole family had made the old-fashioned tour of England, Switzerland, and Italy. Their time being limited, no one knew why, they had omitted France. Archer remembered Dallas's wrath of being asked to contemplate Mont Blanc instead of rhymes and cart, but Mary and Bill wanted mountain climbing, and had already yawned their way in Dallas's wake through the English cathedrals, and May, always fair to her children, had insisted on holding the balance between their athletic and artistic proclivities. She had indeed proposed that her husband should go to Paris for a fortnight, and join them on the Italian lake after they had done Switzerland, but Archer had declined. We'll stick together, he said, and May's face had brightened at his setting such a good example to Dallas. Since her death, nearly two years before, there had been no reason for his continuing in the same routine. His children had urged him to travel. Mary Chivers had felt sure it would do him good to go abroad and see the galleries. The very mysteriousness of such a cure made her the more confident of its efficacy. But Archer had found himself held fast by his habit by memories, by a certain startled shrinking from new things. Now, as he reviewed his past, he saw into what a deep rut he had sunk, 
the worst of doing one's duty was that it apparently unfitted one for doing anything else. At least, that was the view that the men of his generation had taken. The Trenchant division between right and wrong, honest and dishonest, respectable and the reverse, had left so little scope for the unforeseen. There are moments when a man's imagination, so easily subdued to what it lives in, suddenly rises above its daily level and surveys the long windings of destiny. Archer hung there and wondered what was left of the little world he had grown up in and whose standards had bent and bound him. He remembered a sneering prophecy of poor Lawrence Lefferts uttered years ago in that very room. If things go on at this rate, our children will be marrying Beaufort's bastards. It was just what Archer's eldest son, the pride of his life, was doing, and nobody wondered or reproved. Even the boy's Aunt Janie, who still looked so exactly as she used to in her elderly youth, had taken her mother's emeralds and seed pearls out of their pink cotton wool and carried them with her own twitching hands to the future bride. And Fanny Beaufort, instead of looking disappointed at not receiving a set from a parish jeweler, had exclaimed at their old-fashioned beauty, and declared that when she wore them she would feel just like an Isby miniature. Fanny Beaufort, who had appeared in New York at eighteen, after the death of her parents, had won its heart, much as Madame Olenska had won it thirty years earlier. Only instead of being distrustful and afraid of her, society took her joyfully for granted. She was pretty, amusing, and accomplished. What more did anyone want? Nobody was narrow-minded enough to rake up against her the half-forgotten facts about her father's past and her own origin. Only the older people remembered so obscure an event in the business life of New York as Beaufort's failure, or the fact that after his wife's death he had been quickly married to the notorious Fanny Ring and had left the country with his new wife and a little girl who inherited her beauty. He was subsequently heard of in Constantinople then in Russia, and a dozen years later American travelers were handsomely entertained by him in Buenos Aires, where he represented a large insurance agency. He and his wife died there, in the odor of prosperity, and one day their orphaned daughter had appeared in New York, in charge of May Archer's sister-in-law, Mrs. Jack Welland, whose husband had been appointed the girl's guardian. The fact threw her into almost cousinly relationship with Newland Archer's children, and nobody was surprised when Dallas's engagement was announced. Nothing could more dearly give the measure of the distance that the world had traveled. People nowadays were too busy, busy with reforms and movements, with fads and fetishes and frivolities, to bother much about their neighbors, and of what account was anybody's past in the huge kaleidoscope where all the social atoms spun around on the same plane. Newland Archer looked out of his hotel window at the stately gaiety of the Paris streets, felt his heart beating along with the confusion and the eagerness of youth. It was long since it had thus plunged and reared under his widening waistcoat, leaving him the next minute with an empty breast and hot temples. He wondered if it was thus that his sons conducted itself in the presence of Miss Fanny Beaufort, and decided that it was not. It functions as actively, no doubt, but the rhythm is different, he reflected, recalling the cool composure with which the young man 
had announced his engagement, and had taken for granted that his family would approve. The difference is that these young people take it for granted that they're going to get whatever they want, and that we almost always took it for granted that we shouldn't. Only I wonder, the thing one's so certain of in advance, can it ever make one's heart beat as wildly? It was the day after their arrival in Paris, and the spring sunshine held Archer in his open window, above the wide silvery prospect of the Place Vendôme. One of the things he had stipulated, almost the only one, when he had agreed to come with Dallas, was that in Paris he shouldn't be made to go to one of those new-fangled palaces. Oh, all right, of course. Dallas good-naturedly agreed. I'll take you to some jolly old-fashioned place, the Bristol say. Leaving his father speechless at hearing that the century-long home of kings and emperors was now spoken of as an old-fashioned inn, where one went for its quaint inconveniences and lingering local color. Archer had pictured often enough, in the first impatient years, the scene of his return to Paris. Then the personal vision had faded, and he had simply tried to see the city as the setting of Madame Olenska's life, sitting alone at night in his library, after the household had gone to bed. He had evoked the radiant outbreak of spring down the avenues of horse-chestnuts, the flowers and statues in the public gardens, the whiff of lilacs from the flower-carts, the majestic roll of the river under the great bridges, and the life of art and study and pleasure that filled each mighty artery to bursting. Now the spectacle was before him in its glory, and as he looked out on it he felt shy, old-fashioned, inadequate. A mere gray speck of a man compared with the ruthless, magnificent fellow he had dreamed of being. Dallas's hand came down cheerily on his shoulder. Hello, father. This is something like, isn't it? They stood for a while looking out in silence, and then the young man continued. By the way, I've got a message for you. The Countess Olinska expects us both at half-past five. He said it lightly, carelessly, as he might have imparted a casual item of information such as the hour which their train was leaving for Florence the next evening. Archer looked at him, and thought he saw in his young gay eyes a gleam of his great-grandfather Mingott's malice. Oh, didn't I tell you? Dallas pursued. Franny made me swear to do three things while I was in Paris. Get her the score of the last Debussy songs, go to the Grand Guignol, and see Madame Olenska, you know, she was awfully good to Fanny when Mr. Buford sent her over from Buenos Aires to the Assumption. Fanny hadn't any friends in Paris, and Madame Olenska used to be kind to her and trot her about on holidays. I believe she was a good friend of the first Mrs. Buford's. And she's our cousin, of course. So I rang her up this morning, before I went out. And I told her you and I were here for two days, and wanted to see her. Archer continued to stare at him. You told her I was here? Of course. Why not? Dallas's eyebrows went up whimsically. Then, getting no answer, he slipped his arm through his father's with a confidential pressure. I say, father, what was she like? 
Archer felt his color rise under his son's unabashed gaze. Come, own up. You and she were great pals, weren't you? Wasn't she most awfully lovely? Lovely? I don't know. She was different. Ah, there you have it. That's what it always comes to, doesn't it? When she comes, she's different. And one doesn't know why. It's exactly what I feel about Fanny. His father drew back a step, releasing his arm. About Fanny? But, but my dear fellow, I should hope so. Only I don't see... Dash it, Dad. Don't be prehistoric. Wasn't she once your Fanny? Dallas belonged, body and soul, to the new generation. He was the firstborn of Newland and May Archer, yet it had never been possible to inculcate in him even the rudiments of reserve. What's the use of making mysteries? It only makes people want to nose them out. He always objected when enjoined indiscretion. But Archer, meeting his eyes, saw the filial light under their banter. My Fanny? Well, the woman you'd have chucked everything for. Only you didn't. Continued his surprising son. I didn't. Echoed Archer, with a kind of solemnity. No, you date, you see, dear old boy. But Mother said... Your mother? Yes, the day before she died. It was when she sent for me alone. You remember? She said she knew we were safe with you, and always would be, because once, when she asked you to, you'd given up the thing you most wanted. Archer received this strange communication in silence. His eyes remained unseemingly fixed on the thronged sunlight square below the window. At length, he said in a low voice, She never asked me. No, I forgot. You never did ask each other anything, did you? And you never told each other anything. You just sat and watched each other and guessed at what was going on underneath. A deaf and dumb asylum, in fact. Well, I back your generation for knowing more about each other's private thoughts than we ever have time to find out about our own. I say, Dad. Dallas broke off. You're not angry with me? If you are, let's make it up, and go and lunch at Henry's. I've got to rush out to Versailles afterward. Archer did not accompany his son to Versailles. He preferred to spend the afternoon in solitary roamings through Paris. He had to deal all at once with the packed regrets and stifled memories of an inarticulate lifetime. After a little while, he did not regret Dallas's indiscretion. It seemed to take an iron band from his heart to know that, after all, someone had guessed and pitied, and that it should have been his wife, moved him indescribably. Dallas, for all of his affectionate insight, would not have understood that. To the boy, no doubt, the episode was only a pathetic instance of vain frustration, of wasted force. But was it really no more? For a long time Archer sat on a bench in the Champs-Élysées and wondered, while the stream of life rolled by. 
A few streets away, a few hours away, Ellen Olenska waited. She had never gone back to her husband, and when he died, some years before, she had made no change in her way of living. There was nothing now to keep her and Archer apart, and that afternoon he was to see her. He got up and walked across the Place de la Concorde and the Tuileries Gardens to the Louvre. She had once told him that she often went there, and he had a fancy to spend the intervening time in a place he could think of her as perhaps having lately been. For an hour or more he wandered from gallery to gallery, through the dazzle of afternoon light, and one by one the pictures burst on him in their half-forgotten splendor, filling his soul with a long echo of beauty. After all, his life had been too starved. Suddenly, before an effulgent Titian, he found himself saying, But I'm only fifty-seven. And then he turned away. For such summer dreams it was too late. But surely not for the quiet harvest of friendship, of comradeship, in the blessed hush of her nearness. He went back to the hotel where he and Dallas were to meet, and together they walked again across the Plaza de la Concorde and over the bridge that led to the Chamber of Deputies. Dallas, unconscious of what was going on in his father's mind, was talking excitedly and abundantly of Versailles. He had had but one previous glimpse of it during a holiday trip in which he had tried to pack all the sights he had been deprived of when he had had to go with the family to Switzerland. And tumultuous enthusiasm and cocksure criticism tripped each other up on his lips. As Archer listened, his sense of inadequacy and inexpressiveness increased. The boy was not insensitive, he knew, but he had the facility and self-confidence that came of looking at fate not as a master, but as an equal. That's it. They feel equal to things. They know their way about. He mused, thinking of his son as the spokesman of the new generation, which had swept away all the old landmarks, and with them the signposts and the danger signs. Suddenly Dallas stopped short, grasping his father's arm. Oh, by Jove! he exclaimed. They had come into the great tree-planted space before the Invalides. The dome of Mansart floated erythrally above the budding trees and the long gray front of the building, drawing up into itself all the rays of afternoon light. It hung there like the visible symbol of the race's glory. Archer knew that Madame Olenska lived in a square near one of the avenues radiating from the Invalidy, and he had pictured the quarter as quiet and almost obscure, forgetting the central splendor that lit it up. Now, by some queer process of association, that golden light became for him the pervading illumination in which she lived. For nearly thirty years her life, of which he knew so strangely little, had been spent in this rich atmosphere that he already felt to be too dense and yet too stimulating for his lungs. He thought of the theaters she must have been to, the pictures she must have looked at, the sober and splendid old houses she must have frequented, the people she must have talked to, the incessant stir of ideas, curiosities, images, and associations thrown out by an immense social race in a setting of immemorial manners. And suddenly, 
he remembered the young Frenchman who had once said to him, Ah, good conversation. There is nothing like it, is there? Archer had not seen Monsieur Riviere or heard of him for nearly thirty years, and that fact gave the measure of his ignorance of Madame Olenska's existence. More than half a lifetime divided them, and she had spent the long interval among people he did not know, in a society he but faintly guessed at, in conditions he would never wholly understand. During that time he had been living with his youthful memory of her, but she had doubtless had other and more tangible companionship. Perhaps she, too, had kept her memory of him as something apart. But if she had, it must have been like a relic in a small dim chapel, where there was not time to pray every day. They had crossed the Place des Invalides, and were walking down one of the thoroughfares flanking the building. It was a quiet quarter, after all, in spite of its splendor and its history, and the fact gave one an idea of the riches Paris had to draw on, since such scenes as this were left to the few and the indifferent. The day was fading into a soft, sun-shot haze, pricked here and there by a yellow electric light, and passers were rare in the little square into which they had turned. Dallas stopped again and looked up. It must be here, he said, slipping his arm through his father's, with a movement from which Archer's shyness did not shrink, and they stood together looking up at the house. It was a modern building without distinctive character, but many-windowed, and pleasantly balconied up its cream-colored front. On one of the upper balconies, which hung well above the rounded tops of the horse chestnuts in the square, the awnings were still lowered, as though the sun had just left it. I wonder which floor, Dallas conjectured, and moving toward the porte cochere, he put his head into the porter's lodge and came back to say, The fifth! It must be the one with the awnings. Archer remained motionless, gazing at the upper window, as if the end of their pilgrimage had been attained. I say, you know, it's nearly six his son at length reminded him. His father glanced away at an empty bench under the trees. "'I believe I'll sit there a moment,' he said. "'Why, aren't you well?' his son exclaimed. "'Oh, perfectly, but I should like you, please, to go up without me.' Dallas paused before him, visibly bewildered. "'But I say, Dad, do you mean you won't come up at all?' I don't know," said Archer slowly. If you don't, she won't understand. Go, my boy. Perhaps I shall follow you. Dallas gave him a long look through the twilight. But what on earth shall I say? My dear fellow, don't you always know what to say? His father rejoined with a smile. Very well, I shall say you're old-fashioned and prefer walking up the five flights because you don't like lifts. His father smiled again. Say, I'm old-fashioned. That's enough. Dallas looked at him again, and then, with an incredulous gesture, passed out of sight under the vaulted doorway. Archer sat again on the bench and continued to gaze at the awninged balcony. 
he calculated the time it would take his son to be carried up in the lift to the fifth floor, to ring the bell, and be admitted to the hall, and then ushered into the drawing-room. He pictured Dallas entering that room with his quick assured step and his delightful smile, and wondered if people were right who said that his boy took after him. Then he tried to see the persons already in the room, for probably at that sociable hour there would have been more than one, and among them a dark lady, pale and dark, who would look up quickly, half-rise, and hold out a long, thin hand with three rings on it. He thought she would be sitting in a corner sofa near the fire, with azaleas banked behind her on a table. It's more real to me here than if I went up, he suddenly heard himself say, and the fear, lest the last shadow of reality should lose its edge, kept him rooted to his seat as the minutes succeeded each other. He sat for a long time on the bench in the thickening dusk, his eyes never turning from the balcony. At length a light shone through the windows, and a moment later a manservant came out on the balcony, drew up the awnings, and closed the shutters. At that, as if it had been the signal he waited for, Newland Archer got up slowly and walked back alone to his hotel. End of Book Two, Chapter Thirty Four of The Age of Innocence. End of The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton.